Homeschooling dads have a unique opportunity to lead their families and influence their children in ways that are personal, powerful, and pleasing to God. Today, I have the honor of talking with one of my favorite authors, Joseph Pierce, about the role of the father in homeschooling. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Hi, I'm Lisa Maladnik, your host, and today we're talking about the role of the father in homeschooling with someone I have admired for many years. Joseph Pierce is senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative. A native of England, Mr. Pierce is director of book publishing at the Augustine Institute, editor of the St. Augustine Review, editor of Faith and Culture, and series editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions. Check those out. His biographies are amazing. He is the author of numerous books, which include The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man and Myth, The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde, C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, Literary Converts, Wisdom and Innocence, A Life of G.K. Chesterton, Souls in Itzen, A Soul in Exile, Old Thunder, A Life of Hilaire Belloc, and Further Up and Further In, Understanding Narnia. I'd like to also mention one of my favorite books, Race with the Devil, Mr. Pierce's Thrilling Conversion Memoir. Mr. Pierce is also an instructor at Homeschool Connections and teaches many popular courses your children will love, in fact, you will too, on the writings of Shakespeare, Tolkien, Shelley, Wilde, Homer, and other great writers uh, that will just so bless your family. Uh, Joseph, welcome to the program and thanks for taking the time. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you, and you're quite correct, of course, that, that uh, last but not least is the fact that I'm a long-time instructor for the Homeschool Connections. It's such a blessing to have actually met the people that, that, that run it, Maureen and Walter, and to, uh, to have been part of the team, so to speak, for, I, I'm, I've lost count of the years, but, but a number of years now. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've talked to par- parents who have said to me, our dream was when our kids got a little older that they could study with people with a passion for the subjects, re- the, like the real deal scholars. Wouldn't that be amazing? And when they stumbled across Homeschool Connections and found people like you, it blew their minds that they could have their children get online and have these live courses. So it really is just a huge blessing. It's, it's, it's a joy to be with Walter and Maureen, of course. They're amazing people but also to be a blessing to others. Um, Yeah, we're talking today about a subject that I think is not talked about enough because our cultural narrative right now is that fathers are disposable and that men in in media tend to be the butt of all the jokes, whereas women and their children are always wiser and smarter, faster on their feet. Um, But the real statistics from real scholarship show just the critical importance of fathers in their children's lives. could you step us into some of your thoughts about what is the role of the father? You can start with in the family generally and then step it into what your homeschooling life is like, Joseph. Well, I, I might start being somewhat personal. You mentioned uh, my um, conversion story, Race with the Devil, um, and uh, that, that, that charts my conversion to, to, the, to Catholicism by the grace of God. Um, but prior to that, I lived a very dissolute lifestyle, um, and I made all the mistakes that the that the uh, hedonistic culture tell us that, that it is good for us. And I know from experience that it isn't. But more to the point, it's not good for our children. So I've had, um, you know, two children from an old marriage, um, and I wasn't there for them. 
um, their their mother was uh, was abused physically, and she was uh, abusive as a consequence uh, of that abuse. She doesn't didn't know what how to love because she was never shown love. Uh, and uh, because that that relationship didn't work, I wasn't around. I mean, I was I was I saw my children most weekends, but I wasn't around to be a father. And uh, you know, one of my uh, kids back in England has turned out amazingly well, and the other one's a mess. Um, you know, but I do know. Uh, and then uh, by comparison, uh, I am now, by the grace of God, again met a wonderful Catholic girl. Um, hardly a girl anymore, a woman. Um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know, she was a cradle Catholic and knew what the faith was about. And we've been working at uh, our family and at our marriage now for for um, eighteen years, and we have a seventeen-year-old son um, and uh, an eleven-year-old daughter um, who's just beginning homeschool connections this semester, yeah. uh, this coming semester, which we're very excited about. Um, and you know, we've had some miscarriages and a stillborn daughter as well, but it's not been an easy or straightforward uh, ride. But um, we, we feel very blessed. But uh, what I'm doing now is, is, is you know, seeing the difference between having um, uh, both parents loving each other, living with each other, and raising the children with love and a spirit of self-sacrifice as, as, as Christians uh, are, are, are called to do and I can see in the lives of our children exactly what a difference that makes so you know you, we can we can quote as many sociological studies to, to, to show the importance of fatherhood but uh, in my own case uh, I don't need such studies because my own life is a testimony to how to do it wrong and and how hopefully to at least work at getting it right mm, right yeah I mean, I, I love the statistics because I feel like we live in that kind of a culture where everybody's got information at their fingertips. And, and sometimes just to startle somebody out of the cultural mindset about fathers, it helps to know that in families where the, only one of the parents is practicing their faith, if it's the father, 78% of children will grow up to practice their faith. If it's only the mother, about 28%. That tells yeah, that, you I, 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 yeah, I know those, those statistics, and I think they're very interesting and extremely very useful. And I wasn't saying that we, we don't need statistics. Uh, on the contrary, um, the statistics that show us, if you like, empirically, what common sense should tell us anyway. I mean, G.K. Chesterton is called the Apostle of Common Sense. Um, and he spent an awful lot of time defending the family because he could see the consequences of, uh, of, of the family being attacked and, and it, and it um, succumbing to the zeitgeist, to the spirit of the age. And in that, he was a prophet because, you know, 80 years on from, from Chesterton, we can, we can certainly see the damage uh, and, 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 and the chaos that's ensued as a result of the, of the breakdown of the family. And we need to remember that, yes, women suffer from the breakdown of the family, men suffer, fathers and mothers suffer, but the biggest sufferers, the biggest victims are the innocent, weak children, both inside and outside the womb, whose lives are wrecked because of the selfishness of their parents. You know, so love is about laying down your life for others. That understanding of love is sadly lost from our present culture. Without it, the, the biggest victims are the most, are the weakest, and they are the children. Yeah, I remember reading that in your memoir and being very touched by it. Uh, we've seen an awful lot of that in our own families, too. And I love that, um, just as a counterpoint, you know, I was just sort of throwing out the statistic, but yeah, I think the personal stories are the most powerful. I think that that's what really can move people. The conversation points are sort of what's expected, the numbers, whatever, but actually living it out, actually seeing that witness of family life that's working. I almost want to say for a change uh, is just so important. 
Um, what are some experiences that you've had in terms of, since you've been able to compare the two, what really jumps out at you in terms of your own role of a, as a father? What are you seeing? What I see in, 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 in my, my, my son back in England, uh, the absence of a father in his own life, um, he is completely disoriented as to what he should be doing or where he should be going or where he's come from. Uh, he's lost and very, very, very uh, unhappy in consequence. Um, my daughter uh, over there, thankfully, has a very good, strong relationship with me in spite of, uh, of, of, of our, you know, my not being around as I should have been when I was younger. But as regards our, our, our children now, uh, I, I just rejoice in the fact that we have this close bond. We have a, a strange dynamic because our, our, our son, Leo, who's 17, has Down syndrome and autism. And our daughter, Evangeline, although she's 11 and only half the size of her big brother, is actually the big sister because she's the one that obviously looks after him and not the other way around. So we have a somewhat different um, dynamic. But what I would say, and I've written about this on a number of occasions, that, that having a child with Down syndrome in the family is a great blessing because it teaches us so, so many of the important lessons about um, giving ourselves to others, also about how we are dependent on God because whatever difference and distance there is between me and my son in terms of ability, it's minuscule compared with the difference between me and God. And my dependence on God is much, much greater than my son's dependent on, dependence on me. So these priceless lessons are a, a consequence, if you, like, if you like, of accepting and embracing um, uh, disability in our families. What a powerful witness to your children, too. I feel like embracing involves getting down on your knees and, and, and being humbled, like you said, depending on God. And what more powerful lesson than your big, strong daddy getting down on his knees before God? And yeah, and literally, yeah, and literally at the moment, because our son, Leo, who's 17, is still not potty trained, so I'm getting down on my knees changing his diaper still. So that oh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not just the spiritual uh, getting <laughs> down on your knees. And, of course, in that sense, we're all supposed to be living our lives on our knees. But there's the there's the literal and physical that that you know that uh, the old man that I am I'm still managing by the grace of God to be healthy enough to to change my son's diapers. Mm, it makes me think of Christ getting down on his knees to wash the feet of the disciples. That that incredible moment of lowering ourselves down to place ourselves at the service of another human being. Can there be anything more elevated? Nothing more elevated and nothing more edifying in the sense that it lifts up our own souls. I mean, it, it, that's the great, that's the great uh, paradox and mystery uh, of the Christian life is that in giving ourselves to others, we actually receive far more than we give. So, you know, the, the more that we sacrifice ourselves, the, the more we actually receive and the more, the more joy, joyful we become. And, you know, again, the best way of, you know, a paradox seems like a contradiction. The best way of, 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 of proving the paradox is to try it. And, you know, and certainly that's the experience that we have in our family with, uh, with the challenges of, of being parents and, uh, um, and, and these spouses, that the more we give ourselves to the other, the more, the more, we, more we receive. And um, the, the Christian life is, is, is best proved in the practice. It's just an, an unbelievable treasure hunt. I, I have often said to younger marriages in trouble, we just celebrated our 34th anniversary. Thanks be to God. And I was just saying to Charlie yesterday, I feel like we've grown up together because that's really what that, that friction, that learning to adjust and adapt and serve really happens. It, it's our path of sanctification. And um, 
one of the things that I say to younger couples so often is this is a treasure hunt. And until you really have a chance to go around that track a few times, you're not really getting down deep. You're not wearing the grooves down enough to really discover the richer treasures, which come through perseverance and sacrifice and forgiveness. It, it's, not, it's not like in the movies where love is this incendiary, momentary thing. And when, it, when the explosion fades, you move on to being in love with somebody else. That is not love. Well, exactly. It's the antithesis of love because it's selfish and love is selfless. And so that's one of the problems we've got in the world in which we live as we are speaking, using the same words, but entirely different things. So the modern understanding of love is it's about feeling. Uh, and feelings are irrational and they're transient and they pass. And when the feeling goes, you know, you're no longer in love. Right. But uh, but we know we know that uh, as Christians, that love is actually rational. It's a rational choice. It's freely choosing to lay down our lives for the beloved. And the beloved may be our enemy. It's not, you know, it's, it's nothing to do with what we what we feel, because obviously the feelings of love we have towards our friends is going to be different from the feelings we have towards our enemies. The feelings we have towards our parents are going to be different from the feelings we have towards our children or towards our spouse. The feelings, in philosophically speaking, are accidental. What is of the essence is the is is the free choice, the rational choice to lay down your life, to sacrifice yourself for the other. That is the rational essence of love as Christians understand it. it has nothing to do with feeling. So right, so right. And there's this sense too in our culture that if the other person isn't making you feel something, that they've let you down as if fulfillment is supposed to come from your spouse. Why? Why? Fulfillment basically is to come from selfishness, and the and the other person only exists to fulfill your selfish desires and to and and your and your need to be instantly gratified in all your in in, in everything you want. And if you can't find someone that's going to do that for you, you, find someone else. And of course, the tragedy is that sort of selfish understanding leads to misery because there's no one out there that's going to actually just be there for your self gratification. That so means you don't you don't actually form lasting relationships, and you you, you find yourself in middle aged, you know, loveless, uh, and and uh, you know, realizing that the pursuit of of the uh, of the short sighted actually leads to misery. Fulfillment obviously is only going to be found in God, and we only find God in imitating His self gifts. So that discovery of our authentic selves and the authentic other person is found in letting ourselves be lost in service and in love of God and all of that. It's really this incredible paradox. I, I love, one of the reasons I love your books so much is you have a way with words and you can tap at a paradox and open it up in a way that is so accessible. And that's one of them that, that you know, you have to die to, in order to live. You know, it's very Christian. And also something which is counterintuitive but absolutely true is that the, 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 the perfect and true human person is the person of Jesus Christ. So the more we become like Christ, the more fully human we become. Uh, and in becoming more fully human, we actually become more fully happy because, you know, we are, we are meant as human persons made in the image of God to be happy. But in order to attain that happiness, we have to emulate the, the person who's the perfect human being who's Jesus Christ. He lays down his life for us. Uh, he's fully happy. Um, and we need to lay down our lives for him and for each other so that we can share in that happiness. I love what Mother Teresa says about how a cheerful disposition is often a mask for a life of sacrifice and service. So true. Yeah, I mean, there's a, dip, there's a dip, the difference between transient pleasure and the so-called happiness that brings and this deep-seated joy, which is, just has a serenity and, and, and what we might and what Tia Sedi at the end of the wasteland calls the peace that passeth all understanding. 
uh, we're, we're looking at things that are so deep and so transcendent and so profound. Um, I'd like to look at just some of the everyday sort of practical things. What are some ways that your own personal passions and your own development as, as a person impacts your family culture as a homeschooling dad? I'm thinking of how important music is is to you, or at least that's what your memoir spoke to me, that music was really something that fed you along the way. Could you speak? Yeah, yeah by, by the grace of God, you know, I've always had this uh, attraction to the good, the true, and the beautiful. Um, so those things which are, which are good, true, and beautiful, and of course that manifests itself in the arts. So clearly, uh, my, I, I'm very um, passionate about literature. I'm also passionate about the visual arts and about architecture. And yes, I'm passionate about music. Now, you know, I have those sort of... Um, should we say, nostalgic bubbles from my past that are not necessarily <laughs> I spend too much time uh, in, in, you know, having my children imbibe. Um, but basically, we, you know, our, our daughter plays the piano, and I wrote something once for, for um, uh, an article about virtue versus virtuosity. So we want her to actually enjoy playing the piano. We don't want her to hate it because she has to be the best. We, because playing the piano, as Chesterton says, the thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. All right? Playing the piano is a good thing. And it doesn't really matter if she's the best or if she's the, the 500 millionth you know, best. Doing it is good. And, you know, and to hear her playing it and practicing um, is a joy to me. And, yes, we have uh, classical music is certainly part of the backdrop to, uh, to our family, um, especially when, we, when we're driving in the car. But also, you know, I, I like traditional folk music. English folk music, Scottish folk music, Irish folk music, um, and uh, indeed uh, Cajun music, Louisiana. So I would actually recommend, while we're talking about it, to um, two wonderful Catholic folk groups, Scythian, um, who sort of play a mixture, a blend of Eastern European folk music, because they're from uh, uh, ethnically from Ukraine, uh, but also Irish music. And then a wonderful group called Longulus, who are um, a, a wonderful Catholic family from Louisiana, and I, I really have fallen in love with Cajun music and Cajun culture in consequence of, of listening to their CDs. And I, I've had the joy of seeing them live on more than one occasion. So, you know, so we folk music and, and classical music. And of course, it goes without saying, our experience of the liturgy. Um, we, we, we go to a mass that has a beautiful liturgy and some polyphony and Gregorian chant uh, is also part of the musical backdrop to our, to our family's lives. How wonderful to have a family culture that really is kind of uh, continually or, or habitually tasting the banquet of the beauty that God provides, whether spoken through each other's talents or through nature or whatever that is. I know that you love poetry. I was uh, privileged to hear you speak about uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins once years ago on one of the uh, Homeschool Connections free webinars. Uh, it, what a joy it is to to just have a culture that appreciates those things and you can share in them and, and be fed by them. Yeah, I really, I mean, I, basically happiness is, is, is connected to, I don't want to get too deep here, but you know, but the, <laughs> but the, philosoph the philosophers talk about the good, the true and the beautiful, um, Plato and Aristotle, etc. cetera. Um, but I think that Christ reveals himself as the good, the true and the beautiful. When he says in the gospel, I am the way, the truth and the life. And I think that in Christ is the way of goodness, the way of love. He's the truth of reason, and he's the beauty of creation, the beauty of creativity. Um, and we should be meant to see the presence of Christ, you know, in great works of literature, great works of art, beautiful music. But I look out my window now, and I'm going to see a whole forest of trees and green leaves on the trees. Uh, you're also meant to see Christ 
in the presence of creation. Um, uh, God is, after all, the creator, um, and this is his work of art. God doesn't make things like a machine makes them. There's no mass production in, in nature. Every single individual tree out there is as unique as we are because, that's God, because God loves things into being. And when we see things the way we're supposed to see them, we see the presence of God's love in his creatures. Yeah, it's really amazing, isn't it? It gives you that sense of God's love to kind of delve into nature in that way. It's very freeing when you see what he displays for, for our pleasure every day. So I get here, yeah, absolutely. So in, in, in raising children, you know, we try to raise them in that triune splendor of you raise them in goodness. In other words, you teach them virtue. You raise them in truth. You, you make it perfectly clear that reason is, is at the center of the Christian life. There's nothing we call to believe, which is irrational. Peter said ratio, faith and reason are an in, indissoluble marriage. But also you teach them to see and experience and love beauty and not just to see and experience and love beauty but to do it in other words to 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 become creative themselves um so that their creative gifts given to them by god their talents can be manifest in the making of beautiful things that's so beautiful i love that some of the liberal arts colleges and i know that you were a guest uh, artist in residence i believe at st thomas more in new hampshire for a little while i was for two glorious years one of my favorite places out there uh, and a lot of the, our homeschoolers here on Long Island love them too. My daughter did a great books program there, and some of our, we have some graduates from there already too. Amazing place, and that they were they part of the required uh, system there of education is that they learn to make things by hand that are beautiful. That that's part of their development. Um, I also just wanted to mention that I've heard so many stories over the years where beauty. Uh, touch someone's heart, whether walking into a Catholic church or or a sunset or whatever it is, and it caused a conversion where somebody opened their heart to God. But you also encountered moments in your memoir where you talk about goodness, just the simple goodness of other people, and how that opened your heart then to beauty and truth, and how that all tied together for you. It's incredible. Precisely. I mean, the point is that the, 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 the most direct way we can convert others is to become saints. And I know that's easier said than done. But insofar as we succeed, in other words, insofar as we're on, on the path to sanctity and getting better at it by the grace of God and by our own, our, our own uh, obedience to, to, to those gifts, uh, the, the, the more we're a beacon of light in, in, a, in an increasingly dark world. And we need to realize that, that the darker the world gets, the, 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 the brighter the candles will shine. So we just need to work on our sanctity. Um, and in some ways, it might seem more difficult in a dark culture. But in actual fact, you know, look at the history of the church. The greatest saints have been produced in the darkest times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, there's so much, so many different areas that we could go into in a lot of depth. If there were just one area that you wanted to encourage homeschooling dads about the kind of influence that you can have with your kids, what would it be? Well, I, th I, th I think the first of all is that we, we need to be there. So, you know, I, I like many fathers, I, I have this tension. I travel a lot giving talks, um, but I am blessed that when I'm not traveling to give talks, I'm working from home. I'm actually speaking from my home office. My children, I can hear them downstairs uh, as, as I speak. But there's this tension, of course. But the key thing is we, we need to put our families at the center of our lives. We should not be putting um, uh, any secular job or any earning money ahead of our families. Our, our, our primary role is as pater familias, as father of the family, 
And the most important thing about that is to be present to our families, to actually spend time with them and to be happy spending time with them. Don't look upon this as something which is a, a bit irritating until I can actually get back to something that interests me more. Um, no, we have to be present, you know, spiritually, mentally and physically with, with our children and, and with our wives. And so, you know, that, that's what we're called to do and realize that above all else, you know, under our, our need to get to heaven, we are pater familias, father of the family. And indeed, I would say it's not even under our, uh, our, our call to get to heaven because this is the path we've chosen. We've chosen the married life. And now that we've chosen fatherhood uh, and, and being husbands, this is the, the means by which we get to heaven under grace. Um, and and if, we, if we're miserable failures, failures as fathers and as husbands, we're going to be in a bad position when we face our Lord at the end, at end of time. We need to get this right. And, of course, we need to be prayerful about it because we need supernatural help. Now, if we think we can do it for our own arrogant will, we're going to be in big trouble. So we need to be practicing our faith. We have to have a prayer life with our, with, you know, with our family and not just by ourselves. And you know, our family prayers, going to the liturgy as a family, and you, you're basically realizing that you can't do it without God's grace and conveying that through example, through one's own example, to one's members of one's family. Thank you so much. That's so powerful and, and concise. And I really see again and again that when a father is at least trying with God's help to stand up and, and be manly in that sense of the, the noble sense of being a man and being the head of a family, it helps the rest of the family to fall into place. Others know their roles intuitively when the father knows his own and is not afraid to be a leader. And of course, we're not talking about domination or anything sinful. We're talking about leadership. And that's different. That's leadership in the sense of self-sacrifice, you know, showing that leadership means laying down your life for those you love. That that is what leadership is. And men do that in a different way to the way women do it. We both do. We both call to do it, of course. But you know, but women have their way of, of sacrificing themselves for their families. Men have their way. One is masculine. One's feminine. It's the way it's meant to be. But that masculine presence in the family is crucial. It truly is. Thanks be to God for all our good dads and, and, um, and for those who have just been willing to learn as they go, to be humble, get to confession and, and kind of struggle on. <laughs> Such a good example for our kids. All right, everybody, make sure that you check out Joseph's beautiful courses at Homeschool Connections. So many to choose from. I believe he's got about 15 at this point. Also look at the Imaginative Conservative. And your, your website is jpierce.com. Is that correct? Uh, jpierce.co. .co. So it's letter J, then P-E-A-R-C-E dot C-O. Check it out. And thank you so much again for being with us today. My pleasure. God bless you, Lisa. Thank you. God bless you too. And everybody stay tuned for our short feature coming right up. Hi, I'm AJ Catapan. Welcome to Books and Blessings, a place where I get to share with you some of my favorite books for Catholic teens and tweens. Today, I'd like to introduce you to A Single Bead, a novel by Catholic author Stephanie Engelman. A single bead tells the story of a teenage girl named Caitlin, whose grandmother passed away in a plane crash. This sudden death causes Caitlin's mother to fall into a deep depression. On the one-year anniversary of the grandmother's passing, the family gathers for a memorial at the site of the crash. As the family begins to pray the rosary in the middle of a field, Caitlin decides she needs to step away. 
She wants nothing to do with praying a rosary at this time. When she enters an area of the field with trees, she finds a rosary bead nestled among some flowers. However, this is no ordinary rosary bead. This is a bead that belonged to her grandmother's rosary. The truly amazing thing is that her grandmother's rosary was personalized with the initials of every one of her children and grandchildren. As Caitlin examines the bead, she realizes that she has found her bead, the one with her initials on it. Then she goes on to discover that other people have found beads from her grandmother's rosary, and that each of them believes there has been some kind of mystical or miraculous event tied to the bead. Caitlin sets off on a quest to find her mother's bead, hoping it will help lift her mother out of her depression. This story is a journey of faith, family, and the power of prayer. Young teens who struggle with believing in prayer and maybe even believing in God's ability to work in their lives will enjoy this book. Caitlin comes across as a pretty typical teen who has some faith but hasn't quite gotten to the point of really making it a part of her everyday existence yet. Author Stephanie Engelman does a nice job of balancing out faith-filled characters with those who struggle with their faith. This book would be an excellent novel to read during October, the month of the rosary, or during May as we celebrate Our Lady. A Single Bead by Stephanie Engelman has won a Catholic Press Association Book Award and is recommended for ages 12 and up. To see more book suggestions, visit my website at ajcatapan.com. There you can also learn more about my own books for young readers. For your mystery fan, check out Seven Riddles to Nowhere. For your older teen, check out my YA novel, Angelhood, which has been called the teen version of It's a Wonderful Life. Thanks for joining me on Books and Blessings. Be sure to find me online on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or on my website, ajcatapan.com. Until next time, happy reading. And that's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com. Be sure to subscribe to Homeschooling Saints and leave us an honest review. God bless you, and thank you for joining us.